Good afternoon. Uh, I'm joined today by Monica Smith. Monica is uh, from Australia originally and is now uh, devoting her all of her time to activism in the pursuit of liberty. And this came from her experiences <coughs> in Australia and elsewhere. Uh, so firstly, uh, Monica, welcome to UK Column News. Thank you. Everyone I've been meeting has been talking about UK Column and they said, you've got to get on there. So I'm really honoured and pleased to be here. So where I'd like to start is um, I'd like to go back before you were a full-time activist and getting involved in political campaigning with a small P. And what was life like before COVID, before you were prompted into, into all of this activity? Uh, what was your life like and, and what were you like back then? Wow, um, lots of big question there. But I can say that um, about two years prior to 2020, I was actually travelling around uh, the USA and Canada and uh, Thailand and South America and things like that. And it was at that point that I just picked up a camera and started asking a tour guide in Thailand questions. And it all started there in some strange way. I realized I liked asking questions, I liked videoing, and I was interested in what people had to say. So throughout my travels, I actually uh, went to orphanages and filmed short promos for them so that to help them raise money or help them with their, with their work. And um, I would just ask anyone who was willing to go on camera questions, basically. And that gave me a bit of focus while traveling for such a long period of time. And I think that's where I guess I got the confidence um, to be on camera or to ask the questions. Um, and I started doing video editing and things like that. And then when I came back to um, Australia, it was October 2019. And after traveling for two years, I was thinking, how am I going to go back to normal life? I was in real estate beforehand, you know, the normal nine to five grind. And I'd had all these experiences and I was like, what am I going to do with my life now? So I started, you know, editing the videos I had done and things like that. And then um, I did a little campaign to try to save the Brumbies in Victoria. The government wants to kill all these beautiful horses. Some of them have a lot of historic generational sort of bloodlines from wars and things like that. And um, I campaigned to try to stop them from shooting them from the sky. And this is when I started to see that the government was not really looking at the science. Or, sorry, I would say, sorry, not the science, that's a habit. Looking at the facts that it was actually other animals that were ruining the forestation, not the horses, but they just didn't seem to care about the facts and they just went ahead and did what they did anyway, despite the activism and the political pushback against it. And then about a month or so after that, that's when COVID hit. So it was kind of a build-up of experiences. And, you know, you don't just make one video and become this person. It was, you know, years of terrible videos, <clears throat> cringy videos, cringy ideas and mistakes that all kind of led to that point. Then when COVID hit, like everyone else, um, you know, it was, well, I'm going, I'm going a little bit further, if, 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 if I might. Um, uh, when COVID hit, of course, everyone was like, oh, maybe it is only two weeks to flatten the curve. Maybe, maybe you know, that they are just trying to protect us. Uh, you know, I was never scared of the virus because I'm young and healthy, but I was scared for other people and I was uh, appreciative of that situation. And it was really when it was in June, July, when uh, I realized that this isn't about health at all. And uh, that's when I started the full-time activism and that's now been since August 2020. So it's been three years. Um, so I guess you could say it was a slow burn to get to the point where I 
was a full-time activist. Yeah, so just before we leave the, the horses issue, and we've had this in, in, in Britain as well, we've had strange decisions to, to uh, slaughter large number of, numbers of animals. Um, there was one which was uh, cattle, and it was to do with foot and mouth. And it was generated by, well, actually the same man who generated the COVID crisis, um, Neil Ferguson, and uh, his uh, wonderful mathematical modelling, from Imperial College, and this influenced government uh, policy, and this led to horrendous scenes of mass pyres in the countryside, uh, burning hundreds of cattle at a time. Um, and uh, to this day, we've never really had a proper investigation as to how these mistakes were made, or even an acknowledgement that they were in fact mistakes. Uh, there seems to be a tendency uh, in the uh, the part of the state to um, feel puffed up by the act of mass slaughter. It's quite an alarming habit uh, that, that they've developed. Could you tell us just a little bit more about the horses campaign before we go on to code? Yeah, so we actually, we went up into the high country, um, four-wheel driving, which was the first time for me, and we were there with, you know, some cowboys, we were there with um, some legitimate horse-loving people who um, could actually uh, had the skills and the know-how to actually capture wild brumbies and rehome them, uh, train them and rehome them at barely any cost. So they were, and we had the mainstream media there as well um, in the high country with us. And these these men and families were offering to do this service for free. And to the, apparently brumbies make really great domestic horses once they are uh, trained. And, um, yeah, the government just ignored them. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that you're saying, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure the mission behind uh, killing all these animals. I, I'm not 100% sure. But they are also in Australia on the same topic. They're also slaughtering tons of bees as well. Um, so, that, you know, there's, there's all these uh, bee farms that uh, are having to, uh, they're just coming in and exterminating all their bees without proof that they have this particular virus. I'm sorry, I don't know the name of it. But there does seem to be a, be a trend. Um, uh, and I don't really know why. I, I, can, I could only speculate. Um, but it doesn't make sense why they would want to kill these beautiful Brumbies when there is a solution. That's all I can say. Did the government have a position as to, as to why it said it was doing <laughs> Excuse doing this, or was it simply? Well, you know, what was what was their excuse? What was their justification for this action? Uh, it's because the horses were apparently ruining the flora; they were ruining the forest, or something along those lines. Right, so but over, are, overgrazing. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, the horses, right. you know, like ruining the ground. But actually, there's a lot of proof that it is the if any if anything is ruining the flora, it's the wild boars. You know, the wild pigs. Um, you know, and if they were to shoot them down, at least we could eat them. They wouldn't go to waste. Whereas the horses, they are shooting them from the sky, which is not very accurate. And the horses are left there to actually um, die slowly. So I guess our argument was get rid of the pigs and use them and leave the horses alone. I see. Well, that, that takes us to that takes us to COVID, right? Now, COVID was a a big wake-up call for a lot of people, and people realised at different period, different times that, that all was not well. So what was your 
What was your the first major moment you thought, no, hang on a minute, this these people are lying to me. This is this something something stinks here. Well, what was your sort of first moment of significant doubt uh, concerning the government narrative? With the virus itself, uh, my mum has always been into alternative medicine to the point where 35 years ago, or I guess I could say 45 years ago, she decided not to vaccinate any of her children, which is everyone's choice. But obviously that just showcases that she was already outside the box and we're, we're into alternative medicine. So I was never scared of the virus itself. But um, at the beginning, I thought, well, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve, we can handle that. Okay, another two weeks let's see, this is kind of feeling a bit strange. But when it really, really hit me was I had, well, my boyfriend at the time had uh, a protest that had been planned before COVID happened. And it was against Daniel Andrews, the Premier of Victoria. It was about the Belt and Road Initiative, which is an agreement that Daniel Andrews, the state Premier, was trying to sign with China, which you can't sign a a deal like that with a state. It, It would be against, you know, international policy, Australian policy. But anyway, so uh, Morgan C. Jonas was trying to raise awareness about this. Now, because of the COVID restrictions and so forth, he kept delaying it because at this point he had a liaison within the police force and we respected police still at this point and had respect for authority. And so he, he, he liaised with them and kept delaying the protest. And then he just said, oh, look, I, I understand we can't have a big protest. So how about I just go to Daniel Andrews' office or parliament and just do my speech and I'll have one person there to video me and I can just put it online. Now, that one person would have been me, so we were already seeing each other, so there's no health risk whatsoever for me to go and film him. There would have been no audience or, or uh, protest whatsoever. And the police liaison said no to that. That was in July 2020, and that's when it hit me like a ton of bricks. This isn't about health at all. It's about suppressing freedom of speech and especially opposition to the current government, Daniel Andrews. So that's when I was like, okay, we need to do something. I kind of, it was, it was winter in Australia. We were in, we had been in lockdown for three months at this point. Kids weren't able to go to school. Playgrounds were closed outdoors and I could feel the energy was low. Everyone was depressed and angry and you don't have to be a doctor to know that that is not healthy. So I thought to myself, I'll do a live stream protest. So at this point I was still following the rules you know, I didn't really know what else to do. I wasn't prepared to put people in a position where they could get hurt or uh, fined or things like that. So I did a live stream protest so it didn't break any rules. And I said to the people, no one knew who I was. I just came up with a name, Reignite Democracy Australia, slapped together a website. I'm not a website developer, made a Facebook event. And this was when censorship wasn't as military grade. And um, that event got a lot of exposure. About 10,000 people said they were going to go to this live stream uh, event. And then when I did it, I said that I would collate all the comments from the live stream video and create a pie graph or a bar graph and send it to all the members of parliament in Victoria. This is when I thought members of parliament cared what their voters thought. Um, And I had no idea what I was signing up for because the video had 1,500 live viewers, four and a half thousand comments. I've never had a video that big since. And no one knew who I was. No one knew what I was trying to do. I barely knew what I was trying to do. But I guess it was the right place at the right time. It was August 2020. It was kind of, I guess, that point where globally, I think people were starting to question what the actual mission was behind COVID and how dangerous it actually was. People weren't dropping dead in the streets like we had seen in the in the footage from Wuhan. So it was the right time, the right the right action. And I 
I guess I promised an action, which was to send that email to members of parliament, which again, we believed that 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 might have an impact. About two weeks later or three weeks later, obviously the Facebook page went bonkers and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But really what I think put the icing on the cake for my, uh, you know, future in activism was uh, this bus company had a an older bus that they weren't using anymore and it was a big bus not a double decker bus like the ones here we don't have those but it was a longer one and he signed it up mocking our premier daniel andrews it had a picture of daniel andrews going like that and um and on it it said sack dan andrews which is fire daniel andrews now i somehow managed to get a ride in that bus and now it was full lockdown so you couldn't go more than five kilometers three miles from your house without papers Uh, there was a curfew at 8 p.m to 7 a.m i think so it was full lockdown but i had decided that uh that bus was my taxi and i was a journalist so i uh found the loophole to be able to drive around in this bus now the police followed me around they arrested me several no they they pulled us over several times a day, drug test, alcohol tested the driver. They uh, found a way to put a yellow sticker on it, which means that it's not work. They found a scratch in the tire to try to get it off the road. And their intimidation tactics gave me a lot of content on my Facebook page. So I was doing live streams and things like that. And then I started getting on mainstream media, the more alternative uh, media. Um, and I think that's when I guess uh, I made my name in the Australian freedom movement and without realising or planning to, I became the poster girl for the anti-lockdown movement at that time. Um, I was kind of like the first uh, organisation to take it seriously. So we had a phone line, we had email, we answered emails, I had staff and we we did, you know, lots of campaigns. We started groups and things like that. So I, I treated it very seriously in terms of the services that I was offering people and that's that's where I am today, I guess. Okay, so you got you got hassled. Um, did did the state move against you formally? Were there charges? Were there? Uh, did you end up in court? Did you end up behind bars? Did how how far did it get pushed in terms of trying to intimidate uh, and and silence the, the opposition? I guess with success in this part uh in this movement comes of course the uh powerful enemies as well so about a year no only about three months after starting reignite democracy australia um i got arrested three times in one day i got put in the back of a police car for 45 minutes for no reason no charges and then they just let me out um i had all the papers which i'm embarrassed to say i even had them on me because i wouldn't do that again of course but i in theory, um, I actually was following all the rules. I had a cameraman with me. I had staff with me. I had my papers. I had my mask exemption and everything, and they just didn't care. Um, they told me to move on. They gave me a move on order, but I said, well, there's no reason to move me on. I'm working. Um, and they arrested me. And then they said, are you going to move on? And I said, no. So they arrested me again, put me in the, in the police car. And this was my first sort of rude awakening to the fact that my fellow police brothers and sisters, Australians, um, are willing to follow bad orders if they're told to, even if they don't feel comfortable with it. There's no way that they felt comfortable about doing that to me. Maybe one or two of them might have enjoyed it, but there was about 200 police and about 10 protesters. It was really quite alarming, and and, and that really was a huge eye-opening experience for me. But then um, throughout that next year, um, I, of course, you know, 
became more comfortable confronting police and things like that. And I stopped doing the loopholes. So I, I used to promote protests as a journalist. And I would say, I'm going to this protest to report, you know, and that was my loophole um, to not inciting people at all. Um, but I got sick of the loophole and they knew I was doing it. I knew I was doing it. I got sick of playing the game and I just started promoting protests and saying, I'm going, you should too. And that's when it got pretty serious. So they arrested me. They, they followed me. Uh, and I think it was three undercover cop cars, seven police uh, arrested me and charged me with incitement which is basically if I was to uh, tell you to go rob a store but I didn't do the robbery, I should be culpable for that. That's like incitement. But in this case, I was inciting people to break the COVID restrictions, which is only a fine offence. So they found a loophole around the criminal system to charge people like me with incitement. Now, I wasn't the first. It had happened to many others before me. And the tactic was it wasn't about the charges and it wasn't about proving the charges. It was never probably, go- it was never going to go to trial. But what they would do is give you bail conditions that affected your ability to speak. That was the tactic. So um, I got arrested. Um, then the next day we had a bail hearing and the uh, the bail conditions were so draconian that I never had a choice. There's no way I could sign them. And personally, they had, I had to be home from 7 p.m to 6am every day. So a personal curfew for Monica Smith, regardless of any other restrictions. But the draconian ones that I really couldn't sign was the first one was uh, I had to delete everything off my website that was in opposition to the COVID restrictions. It didn't say I had to delete everything on my website that incited people to break the COVID restrictions. No, no, no. Anything that was verbally or written in opposition to the restrictions. Now, my entire website was in opposition to the government at the time, and it was getting 50 to 100,000 views a week. So clearly it was a service that people needed. Also, I was the vice president of a political party. How the heck am I supposed to do my job if I can't oppose the current government's restrictions? And also I had eight staff, so they all would have lost their job. Now, I also had to delete all that content within 24 hours of uh, leaving the jail. So they knew that if I signed uh, in, with the thoughts of appealing, I would have had to already delete the website before that time. The other one was, and this is even worse if you can imagine, is I could not speak against the COVID restrictions, even in the privacy of my own home, not that they can police it. But um, obviously that's very draconian and ridiculous, of course. So I was in a position at the time to not sign those bail conditions because I don't have young children and I have a very supportive family, friends, network. So I decided I couldn't sign those. So I didn't. And I went to prison for 22 days to wait for the appeal. Um, I was in solitary confinement. I didn't go outside once because I wouldn't take a PCR test. I figured I've come this far. I'm not going to take a PCR test now. Um, So when we appealed the bail conditions, we won. Um, All those draconian ones got taken away. And the great thing is, is that uh, it set a precedent because the next person they tried to do this to, they were only able to give them the bail conditions that uh, we had appealed and gotten the second time. So it was definitely worth it um, to do that. But I I will just finish that story because it did get worse, um, surprisingly. So I pled not guilty to the charges um, and they thought they would just try another tactic. So they got 
signed by a magistrate. Can you believe it? I mean, I can now because I understand that they're paid by the government. So, of course, they're not going to go against the government uh, generally. But um, they got a warrant signed that I had to sit in a room with a police officer and give them password access to everything in my phones that they had. It's still in their custody. They had for two years, actually. They wanted me to sit down and give them access, access to Google Maps, Google Docs, Google Drive, all my admin accounts, all my Reignite Democracy Australia accounts. There's so many private emails there. They would have had access to my database, which had over 100,000 email addresses, some of which um, had actual physical addresses and phone numbers and things like that as well. So I appealed that, that warrant and lost um, like $60,000 worth of legal fees. So another a, a high court judge also signed off on that warrant, so to speak. And so I, I was left with uh, some difficult choices. I could either plead guilty to the original charge, I could give them the passwords, or I could uh, try my luck and just say no and see what happens. The problem with that is not complying with the warrant is another indictable offence and uh, a whole new case, a whole new everything, more serious than the first one, potentially five years jail if you're found guilty. Um, but secondly, it's breaching your bail because you're committing another criminal offence. So I could have gone to prison for three months with no questions asked, like instantly. And um, But I, again, was in the position to try my luck and I just said, I'm not going to give you anything and um, if you want to arrest me, just let me know so I can be ready in my pyjamas and more comfortable clothes this time. And two days later, they dropped the charges. So um, that's the story. So I guess the intimidation was pretty high, but um, I'm really blessed to have been given that opportunity to stand up um, in that way because my lifestyle um, offered me to do that. I'm not, I'm not like necessarily more courageous than the next person. I just, not everyone is called to do that sort of thing because not everyone has the ability and the life situation to do it. And I did. And, and I'd do it again. It was worth every, every moment of stress. And, and the funny, funny thing is, is that originally they just wanted to shut me up and, um, it really backfired, which I find really hilarious. And, um, I'm still riding the wave of that story two years later, traveling the world and things like that. So the joke is on them in the end. So sometimes it works out to say no to intimidation. Indeed it does. Uh, A couple of things that you've said there that we've noticed in Britain, um, the use of bail conditions to do things which are manifestly unlawful, including stealing children. Um, that one comes up. So someone is uh, basically put in the cells and uh, they're offered a way out, which is bail conditions, and the bail conditions are deemed to be some form of consent and uh, the child disappears. That's a particularly nasty one. Um, the uh, solitary confinement for not taking the PCR test that operated in Perth prison, remand prisoners, so not convicted of any anything, uh, put in Perth, were kept in solitary, weren't allowed to join in any sort of exercise until they had been, in fact, jabbed, tested and jabbed. Um, and uh, so solitary confinement, which is essentially a form of torture, was used to compel them to take uh, the COVID injectables. And um, that uh, is obviously manifestly unlawful, but that operated in Perth, but not in other jails in Scotland, I understand. So it seemed to be quite patchy. It depended on the individual in charge of the neck. Um, so these things you know, were in Australia, but they were all across the Western world, all across the quote-unquote free world, we were seeing this. Um, 
when did you start to see the confidence of the state in their narrative, in their authority, in their ability to compel people start to crumble? In Australia, I think they're still holding tight to that control. And of course, Australia is a bit different. It's got a smaller population. We're quite isolated. And so um, definitely on face value, they still do have all the control on face value. But what I notice when I am on the ground is that they have no control at all and no one believes anything that politicians or mainstream media say. However, the difficulty is is that so many people are just afraid to have those conversations. So you might think that the person next to you is not aware of these things, but they are. They're just scared to broach the topic with you. So I believe that the the last elections in Australia um, were definitely the hardest for the major parties that they've ever been. And I can say that for sure, but they still got in. Um, So I guess, to be honest, I haven't seen it crumble in a really public way yet, unfortunately, not like I see in the UK. In the UK, it seems to be a little bit more obvious that uh, they're not doing very well with things like ULEZ and things like that. And I'm kind of excited to see something like that happen in Australia. And I would like to see my fellow uh, men, especially men, uh, doing what the Blade Runners are doing. And uh, I have every faith that they will, but I just haven't really had that um, had that conf- confirmation. But I will just say before I finish on that topic is that we had a, a protest in Canberra not long after the truckies, conv- the Canadian truckers. Of course, they inspired the whole world. It was amazing, wasn't it? Anyway, so we all went to Canberra. And if people don't know, Canberra is in the middle of nowhere. Some people drove 40 hours full time to get to this location. So the fact that we had at least 700 or 800,000 people in Canberra in the middle of nowhere is a huge feat. We only have 26 million people in the entire country. So that is a huge portion portion of the people. And then imagine how many people couldn't come. Lots, probably maybe, maybe five or 10 times that amount couldn't actually go. Now, I think the mistake that we made was that we went home. We, we probably should have stayed there until we gotten what we wanted. But I just don't think the people have felt quite enough pain to uh, go to that level. But um, that does showcase that the narrative is definitely crumbling but more behind the scenes. And unfortunately, people believe that 95% of people got the injections. And I just don't think that's possibly true because then I've literally met potentially the entire 5% of the population that didn't didn't get the injection. So I think they're lying about the numbers. So there's still a huge smoke screen up in Australia, I must say. You talked about fears there, overcoming fear. And it feels a strange thing. You, 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 you can perceive it when you see it. You know, it's, I, I'm afraid and I feel some fear. And when you decide to push through that and it's okay, this is, this is great because it encourages, it encourages more action. And more action. And and this allows people to start to become a thorn in the side of the system. It's a beautiful thing. Um, could could you talk a little bit about your experience in Australia of you know both personally and what you've seen in people around about you of overcoming the fear of not letting it rule and control you and going beyond that to the point where um, overcoming the fear becomes second nature, you know, part of who you are. Thank you so much for asking that question because 
what I've noticed is that um, we all know that fear is a huge tool to control people. I mean, yeah, we all know that. But there's two there's two fear campaigns going on at the moment. I mean, there's a lot more, but this, these are the two I want to talk about. For the people who aren't on our wavelength with what happened with COVID and, you know, one world government and things like that, the fear campaign at the moment is obviously the new virus, masks coming back, global boiling, things like that, um, Ukraine and Russia. Um, but there's also a very strong fear campaign um, directed specifically at us because we have become a huge number of thorns in their side. So they must face this and they must fear us as well. And how I believe they're doing that is with the digital IDs, the 15-minute cities, the um, uh, the potential of CBDCs, closing down banks, uh, talking about getting rid of cash. That really gets into our psyche and we start sort of worrying about when are they going to do it. And it is a tactic that is used, um, has been used in history many times, is to you go hard and then you pull back a little bit and then you go a bit harder than you were before and then you pull back a little bit, etc. So at the moment they're in the pulling back stage and I think they're hoping that we kind of drive ourselves crazy um, by reading too much and going down too many rabbit holes, um, something called black-pilled where you just can't see anything at all that's good. Everything is corruption, everything is uh, thorns, etc., etc. So I think that's a tactic that they're using to keep us in fear because when we are in fear, we're allowing the potential of what might happen or not happen steal from our present. It's stealing from our lives. It's stealing from our quality time with our loved ones and things like that. I mean, you can wake up in the in the morning and, and think about all the things that could go wrong that day, or you could wake up in the morning and just see if things go wrong and deal with them as they come. So my point is, is that it doesn't really matter what they say they have planned. They actually might not be able, able to achieve any of them, for example. Look at the ULS cameras. Again, I'm going to use that example. They had this plan. They thought that everyone was really scared of climate change, but it turns out that virtue signaling is very cheap. And as soon as you tell someone they have to pay 12 euros a day to uh, care about the climate, they don't want to care about the climate anymore. So I think that they actually think that we're actually more scared that, than we are. And the point is, is that bringing in CBDCs or digital IDs, which would be the end, which would, sorry, not the end, it would be a very big uh, difficulty for us as the freedom movement. To actually achieve that is a lot harder than they make it out to be. I think they want us to think that they're already on their way. But you probably know that anyone can have a fancy website a really expensive one and it looks like it's really big and you've got all these employees but actually it's like one person behind it doing absolutely nothing. So I imagine that most of what the government threatens us with is actually completely empty threats and now when I see um, that what I will say that, that there's a saying that I really love at the moment and it is don't interfere with your enemy when they are in the process of destroying themselves. I'll say that again, don't interfere with your enemy when they are in the process of destroying themselves. I think that people like us and conservatives and activists, we need to learn how sometimes to sit back and let things happen because sometimes they're going to implode on themselves. And sometimes if we push back on particular topics, it actually just prolongs the inevitable. So we can't save everyone. If a, if a parent is going to bring their two-year-old child to a drag queen show, we potentially will never be able to uh, do anything to help that child. They're probably doomed for life, okay? And it's not our job to help every single person. And the reason I bring up that example is because in Victoria, we we did manage to stop a drag queen story time show and it was a lot of effort. And then the next week there was 10 more. 
So I realized at that point that um, we need to pick our battles. And um, when we see a scary headline talking about a, a censorship bill or things like that, now I actually just laugh and I'm just like, well, just hurry up and do it then. If you bring in that censorship bill, I'll stand on the corner of the streets with the sign and make amazing friends and uh, and become a stronger person. So go ahead and do it because every time they push too far, like with the ULES cameras, they uh, get a rude awakening. And I'll just say one more thing on this, and this has really helped my fear. And, you know, the fact that I'm dealing with my fear and I've been in prison, I've had to spread my private bits for police officers, you know, like if I can get rid of my fear, then I think I think a lot of people can. And um, what I when I see these big headlines, I actually imagine, and I hope that other people can do this too. You know how Parliament is usually a, um, a circular shape with 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 um, chairs coming down, and then the stage is in the middle. I actually imagine that it's a circus, like a legit circus tent, and the members of Parliament are dressed as clowns. And they've got makeup on that's really ridiculous and they've got the big noses and they're literally running around beating their own chests and showing off to each other about how good they are and they got into the media and they said this and, oh, look, I scared this person. And it's all just a big show. And um, when I think about it like that, I just am not afraid. And to be honest, uh, when COVID happens, happened, we weren't ready. We didn't have groups. We didn't have tribes. We didn't have communities that built around it. And look what we achieved. We achieved so much. We woke up so many people. So I don't think we should be greedy and expect to continue waking people up. Now's not the time to wake people up. But when there is another crisis that they try to push the thumb on us again, that's when we will hardly need any energy to grow our communities. So I say it's time to rejuvenate, focus on your health and well-being, and prepare yourself mentally for when the opportune moment is to wake up 10 times the amount of people with the exact same energy that you might have to use now to wake up one person, you can wake up 10 with hardly any energy when there's a global crisis in front of your face. So I hope that explains it. And the, 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 the uh, phrase that I've been using is we are ready. Basically, if you say it to yourself every day, you'll wake up one day in about a month's time and you'll actually feel ready. Even if you're not, it's a psychological thing. It's worked for me. Yeah, on, on this, uh, you talked about the mistakes uh, the establishment establishment has made they've made many um trying to push covid again now is an enormous mistake it, it's the, the tweets are wonderful we've got stv who are completely owned and operated by the governing party in scotland and they they're putting out oh there's another variant oh we'll have to wear masks oh it's going to be scary and and they put this out as a report and they put it on twitter and it's it it does your heart good to look at it because the replies and thing, and it's just this wall of derision. Right? And, it's, and there's nobody supporting it. Nobody's on their side. And it's, there's just hundreds of people telling them exactly, in often quite robust terms, what they think of their position. And another example is uh, the World Economic Forum, uh, who, who's, who came up with the motto, you'll own nothing and be happy. Yeah, yeah, we know we know you're pushing communism 4.0, but thanks for confirming. All right, so how many times has that that meme uh, gone round the houses? This has been devastating. Whenever they tell the truth, because they're doing evil and unpleasant things, whenever they tell the truth, they go backwards. And eventually, to do anything, they have to tell the truth. They have to inform people. They can't do 
nasty, horrible things to the entire society without issuing instructions. And the instructions have to be detailed enough to be capable of being followed. And there's a paper trail. So when they push beyond a certain point, um, we start to get huge amounts of ammunition. Um, and on the on the drag queen side, uh, I, a UK column viewer wrote to me uh, today uh, with their FOI on a drag queen event in uh, Yorkshire, I think it was, or Northumberland, and um, they, they'd asked for the risk assessment, the safeguarding policy, and the risk assessment for the drag queen uh, event in a in a in a public library. It's for children. Um, and the response was, your request is vexatious, we're not going to answer it. Now, this is nonsense. This is this is not a sustainable position from the council. So I hope I hope our viewer goes back and appeals that and takes it to the information commissioner, because all of a sudden their drag queen event from last summer is still going to be causing them enormous organisational pain and time and disruption and of trying to find a story to justify the unjustifiable and bringing up all of the problems with this policy over and over and over again, they will get tired. The officials will get tired. They will lose morale. And our team, the people pushing back against this, they can have fun. And when you're having fun, it's not tiring. This is it's very important to realise this. Um, so you're not in Australia now, you're in Europe, you're doing a world tour. How did that come about? Well, I am just doing a Europe tour to begin with. Um, but basically when things opened up for the unvaccinated, I thought, well, now is my time. Um, I really kind of needed to get away from Australia after the three years of basically oppression there. Um, just to kind of like, I guess on a personal level to find myself, it sounds cliche, but, you know, because I really gave everything to the freedom movement and I still am doing doing that as well. But, in a, you know, change of scenery is really good for the soul, as you, as you know. Now, because of my jail time and things like that, I managed to build an international database. And so what I've been doing is just uh, I can section it into countries. Um, and so I just email the country before I go there and say, does anyone want to invite me to a little community event? I don't care if it's 10 people or 30 people or 200 people. It doesn't matter to me. Um, and so I've had over 25 events in 10 countries and I've probably hugged and shaken hands with over a 1,000 uh, freedom lovers from all different cultures and backgrounds and age, age groups. And uh, the reason I'm doing that is, well, one, it really does inspire me um, because, you know, there is no such thing as, as an original idea. So when you get to speak to so many different people, you get tidbits of information and who knows where that's going to lead in two or three years' time. Uh, it might, you know, become an amazing campaign and I won't know where it came from. But that's why the globalists want to keep us apart. They hate community groups. And for me, I think keeping community groups um, alive is one of the most important things that freedom lovers can be doing right now because if something happens, then you want to have that support network because then you're a lot harder to intimidate. But, yes, yeah, so the other reason I am doing it is because I want to showcase to the world through my Substack, I'm writing a Substack on each country and I'm putting all the links to the people I met and the groups that I met and things like that. I'm quite behind, but it will happen. I've only done France so far. Um, but I want to show the world that the freedom movement is extremely diverse and there's a lot more people than you think. Because the freedom movement is quite um, 
divert, like it's, uh, it's not centralized because freedom people don't want to be centralized, which is a good thing, but it can sometimes feel like your group is the only active group or your, your community is the only one, but there are communities in remote villages, in little islands. And when the time comes, and because I've met so many people, I can tell you now when the time comes, it is going to be fun. Now I'm not going to be naive. Of course, it's going to be difficult. There's going to be times of difficultness. Absolutely. But overall, we are so much stronger than we were the first time. We've learned so much, just like what we were talking about on how to pick your battles and how to sit back and watch some things happen. We've learned these things. Um, Before we were running around like headless chickens, being reactive to everything. Now we're not like that. And we're way more networked and connected. And the other main thing that I've noticed from doing these events and getting to meet people on a personal level, I've stayed at their houses, broken bread with them, et cetera. A lot of people were thinking exactly the same as us during that time, during lockdowns and all that, but they weren't quite ready to walk around without a mask because they didn't want the confrontation. They weren't quite ready to talk about it at work and things like that. But I have had several and several and many people come up to me and say, next time I will not be silent. And I believe that since the man- the mandates and the closures, border closures has ended, I think that millions and millions of more people have actually woken up, but we don't know who they are because there isn't a big crisis to bring us all together and force us into these communities. But so many people have woken up because of the access mortality rates and the, and the continued narrative that they just refuse to let go of. So when something does happen, you're going to see whatever community you have built is going to double or triple and it's it's going to be hard but it's going to be magical and it's going to be a time in life that you're going to want to stand up and be with the people because it's going to be it's going to go down in history. So I love what you said about uh get kind of thinking about that it might be fun and it's it's going to be exciting. So we and I will just finish on this is that I know I've gone a little bit off topic but these are the things I've kind of learned while while traveling and meeting people is that we've become so much stronger and none of us really want to go back to how we were before COVID, which is a good thing. But when the other people that haven't woken up yet wake up, they're going to go through a very, very difficult time. It's going to be harder for them than it was for us because of the way that they treated us and the way that they hated us during all that time when all we were doing is trying to help everyone actually. So they're going to go through a huge depression and they're going to need us to accept them. So if we can try to not say, I told you so, or make them feel stupid or be angry at what they did to us, you know, if I can forgive the police officers, then surely you can forgive the teenager who told you to put a mask on at the grocery store kind of thing. So um, I have gone off topic, but that's kind of part of my messaging when I do the tour. So I wanted to put that in. Yes, uh, we're looking for converts, they're looking for traitors. That's the difference. Uh, The... um what I'd like to do to finish off, um, you, you've spoken you know, ve- very clearly and well about about the spirit you're bringing to moving this forward. Um, what do you make of what we've been up against? You, you, you've butted up against it in many ways on more than one continent. The masking where it wasn't about healthcare, it was about compliance, it was about obedience, it was about signalling, it was it was almost religious in nature, um, genuflecting to the state, the new God. Um, you have um, 
the nature of uh, the, the the belief which got some traction for a while that uh, compliance was righteousness, was virtuousness, not what it actually was, which is ignorance and cowardice. Um, that, I don't think so many people will make that mistake next time around. Uh, but as you've looked at the thing we've been fighting, the evil we've been fighting, you know, what's your takeaway kind of impression and model and way of describing uh, what we're up against? Well, I mean, most of your audience will probably understand how they achieved it. Um, you know, it's obviously the 30-year mortgage, uh, you know, th that's obviously a huge trap. And to be honest, conveniences in general are, are a huge trap, all the, all the subscriptions, all the technology and things like that. And I think that's how, that's one reason why they were able to um, encourage so many people to comply. The second reason is, and I'm going to bring God into it because um, I honestly believe the absence of God enables people to um, kind of hero the government uh, because I think naturally humans want a hero. They want someone to protect them um, in some way or another. And when you believe in God, it's like the government is just a person and they're, they're not the ones that are going to save you. you. You know that God's there looking out for you. So you're, I, feel, I feel like you're less likely to fall for government, but, of course, that was not the case in, in every scenario. So I think taking God out of things is, has really helped and taking the uh, community and, fam and nuclear family away has, has helped a lot. Um, but I would, say, I would say that what we're up against is um, it, it's, it's got to be devil in nature um, because a lot of these people, what, my opinion, a lot of these people have all the money they want, all the women, all the power. Um, you know, what more could you possibly want on this earth? And the only thing that I can come up with is that they want to hurt God's creatures and that's why they want to um, fill us with pharmaceuticals and uh, not encourage us to, to go outside and be happy and things like that. That's the only reason I can imagine why they would continue to do what they're doing. Uh, if you were just a control freak, locking up the whole world would have been enough. That would have been like, okay, I can die now because I have complete control over the world. So there must be something more sinister. And the other thing is obviously the non-God devil approach is that, you know, there is this one world government and, and people find it really difficult to fathom that a small group of people can control the whole world, but they absolutely can. I mean, I could if I had the right networks. You know, if I knew the politicians from each country, uh, all you need to do is send out one memo to one person from each country and it filters down to everyone else. It's absolutely doable and it's absolutely obvious. So, um they're, they're definitely uh, anti-God, they're very organised, um, but it, what I think they lack is their ability to understand us. When I say us, I mean the people that are going to push back at any cost. It really bothers them that we have purpose, that we believe in God, that we believe in something outside of ourselves. It really, really frustrates them. They don't understand why someone would sacrifice something for the good of someone else because for them it's just not even fathomable in their mind. So we just need to keep being those bigger people and it will just keep annoying them actually en masse, hopefully, and it will encourage them to make mistakes that we can then take advantage of. I don't think we are going to win. I think they are going to lose and there is absolutely a difference. I don't think we can stop them from trying because they're arrogant. Now you ask, what are we up against? These people are human beings just like us, which means that they are very open to making mistakes. They are also very arrogant 
So if on mass, I don't know how to exactly do this, but if on mass we are no longer afraid, they're going to be really frustrated about that and they will make mistakes that we can take advantage of. So I think um, we just need to be, we need to have collective courage of conviction because like me going to prison isn't going to change the world. Uh, Julian Assange is still in prison and hasn't changed the world. It has to be everyone and they might pick on a few people, but if too many people hold the line, if too many people say no, they've got absolutely no hope whatsoever and they know that and that's what makes them scared. So if we want to do a fear campaign towards them, then we need to act like we're ready and hopefully they get that wave somehow and it freaks them out and they make mistakes. So, yeah, we're up against evil people is the bottom line. The whole aspect of the government being a god, I, I kind of got that until recently uh, when, when I, I was I was talking to um, a woman who's very active, doing many good things, and uh, also um, uh, I had an adoptive child, has an adoptive child, and the adoption agency were pushing back and saying, you, you're online and you're openly criticising, you know, slagging off, was the phrase you used, the council. This is terrible. And what? I haven't been. She went and checked what she'd said. So she tweeted out, it was actually about a, a completely different council, but she tweeted out that she'd made a, a, a child safeguarding referral to a local authority. And she said, and we'll, now we'll see what happens. And that was, that was viewed as outrageous criticism because what it said was there's the possibility that the council will not do a good job, will not actually benefit the child. So saying, holding out the merest possibility that the council was going to let, let, let the case down, let the side down, was viewed as being outrageous. I said, well, this is very interesting because this means that they're viewing the council as God. They're viewing it as something which must not, cannot, shall not be questioned. Um, this is this is the comfort zone that some of our some of the, the state officials have reached, and they will of course find that it's not a god; it's a false god, and it's a very cruel false god. And when they find this out, you're quite right. We have to be there, ready to forgive them for what they've done, and and welcome them onto um, the side of truth. Um, uh, Monica, I want to I want to thank you very much for your time today. It's been lovely talking to you. Um, I've not, to my knowledge, have I had a conversation with someone who's been charged with incitement for incitement to encourage people to go out in the fresh air, have a nice time, and hug one another. Uh, but uh, that seems to be your crime, and uh, long may it continue until uh, we get a chance to speak again. Monica, thank you very much.